This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Luke. I'm Eric. And this is a this is going to be a podcast um, about different uh, forms or different lengths um, of different science fiction and fantasy. We'll bring it all in here. And the notes here say short story, novella, fix up novel, novel, trilogy, world uh, series, um, all those kind of things. We're going to be discussing the different pros and cons um, of, of both writing them and also the different experiences of reading them and what you can get out of them in different ways. So, Eric, was this your idea to discuss this? on the podcast it was a suggestion luke <laughs> yes it was oh, it okay. seems to me that there are sort of standard things to say about this when you uh when you study literature with a capital l uh, it seems to me that they may not even be true for literature with a capital l but to the extent that they're true at all, they're much more interesting in science fiction than those truisms that you usually hear i mean the truisms say well, a short story gives you an insight. And it can even be a ringing insight that, that stays with you for a long time, like the famous ending of uh, Joyce's The Dead. But a novel builds a whole world. Um, and then, you know, compare the ending of The Dead with the, the whole of Joyce's portrait of, the art, of an artist as a young man. Um, that's not a bad comparison, but... It does seem to me that sometimes we get short stories that seem to imply a whole world. And in science fiction, that's one of the, the desiderata, right? I mean, we like to know that as soon as we get into this, we are feeling that we're in a, a fully developed world. And there are some times when, a, short, when a, a long form in science fiction seems like it's just the same thing happening again and again and again with variations on a theme. If you, you like it, you Doomsday call it... Book. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And if you like it, you call it art. And if you don't like it, you call it pornography. All right. It's just the same damn thing again and again. Um, so it seemed to me that maybe it was worth thinking about how different forms uh, tend toward one kind of experience or another. So, yeah, I, I made the suggestion. Well, I, that's actually quite uh, quite important for me as a, a reviewer because um, my uh, podcast is a science fiction book review podcast, and lots of people say, "Hey, you know, why don't you review this short story, or would you read this short story and review it and things?" And for me, that's very difficult because the format of my podcast, I often go into it with very very few notes, and the only way that I can keep everything in track and keep everything um, set uh, is that I do it in a specific order and touch on different parts of each novel. Um, in order, I, first of all, I talk about, well, just, you know, an introduction and why I'm reading it. But then I talk about, you know, the, the world. And then I talk about the story plot kind of thing. And then I move on to the characters and what the characters do within the within the world and their roles and what I like about them. And then I talk about like the like the science fictional or fantasy elements, you know, what they bring in there. And then I talk about the writing um, and the narration, if it's an audiobook. And then I talk about the themes, the wider themes. And normally the themes take up about half of the podcast and the other parts really... Uh, you know, take up a you know, take up the other half of the podcast. But what I find so often with with um uh with with a short story is that they do really only touch on one of those 
set like one of those earlier sections if you know what i mean i can talk about the themes and stuff but like often if it's going to be a story about some characters or like a character development the world is hardly touched on at all or it's just set in the modern world you know just sort of like you know the the next set next week or whatever it is um and in other other times in other short stories uh there's the whole world is set out but the character nothing really happens to the character except they just kind of pass through it and notice stuff. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe it's a book about which is all plot, but then the character doesn't have a lot and the, and the world isn't very set. It's just sort of like telling a very short story. Um, and so it's more of a, it's more of a, uh, like with a novel, you often get all of those different things into it. It's, it's, it's a bit strange if you have a whole novel and there isn't any world building or you have a whole novel and there isn't any character development, you know, the novel, like, contains all these like four or five different sections which um a short story sometimes only touches on one again that's kind of the obvious thing about short stories but for me it's important and uh, uh and it's difficult to review a short story in that way for me because it's because it is it, i i would have to hold it to a different standard or have to read it in a different way than a novel um otherwise it would just feel like too much is missing really i, th- I think there's something in- interesting what you're saying there that's coming coming out when i think about short stories which i I've always loved short stories, but the one of the interesting things about short stories is that they can be radically different from each other. Um, whereas I, I know there are novels that are variable different, you know, rather different, but they all do have that kind of structure that you're you're talking about. They're going to have the world building, they're going to have the character and plot and development and uh, many other themes that are in there, but there are short stories that are only one thing and there are short stories that are all those things. And there are short stories that are, um, two of the things and nothing of the third, or they're not what you think they are. And, um, there's short stories that are just jokes, right? There's, I don't think they're uh, fake hoots, right? Exactly. That should have been on our list. Although that is, I guess, a kind of short story in a way there's a, there's a, um, an interesting thing that can happen in a short story is that they can be whole worlds. Like I, I was thinking of uh, Frederick Pohl's Day Million, right? There's a story where it basically it spawned the whole genre of kind of accelerando novel style short stories and worlds, and it says so much and it's tons to unpack. Uh, but it's just four or five pages long. And it's it's it is a novel. It is a world. It is all those things because it it can it has spawned all that. And I, I guess that does connect to you know the expansion that we see from short stories into novels and novellas and and into worlds and series and all that. Yeah. Uh, one thing that comes up in, in like as an example of that kind of world building only short stories the the Ted Chiang stories of your life and others. Mm. Um, where it's, it opens, I think, with the Tower of Babel. Is it the Tower of Babel? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, and it's all about the world. It's like one person arrives in the scene, and then the entire book is just him traveling up the tower into heaven and describing the world and describing what's going on. And he has, you know, as a character, almost we know nothing about him really, except, of course, we do find out a bit about him, like in the way that he describes or the what he sees along the way. But there's very little story. There's very little of anything except, hey, I've got this idea for a world, and I'm going to explore it. And it was for me, it was fantastic because. It, that's all it was. It was like, I'm going to describe a world and it's going to take 20 pages and it's going to be awesome. And it was. And that's mm-hmm. the fact. 
I like. Uh, and then in other of his stories, um, I can't remember them. Sometimes it's like, okay, I'm not going to describe the setting. I'm not going to do anything. There's not even going to be any dialogue. It's just going to be a script of a television documentary. And all I'm going to do is explore, you know, this, this three characters and the themes about being ugly or not ugly or even being able to tell if people are ugly or not um yeah and, and again that's the kind of thing he stripped away every single element which wasn't needed for the function of that short story as he was writing it and uh, again i think i actually quite like those thematic ideas um and i really liked the 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 worlds that he built um in some of them but the ones that fell a bit flat for me were the ones which were too much inside people's heads um where it wasn't about the world and it wasn't even about the themes. It was just about an idea of like, would drive someone mad. Did he, did he strip it? Did he strip it away or was it just not embellished to the nth degree? What do you mean? Did he strip what away? Well, you're, you're saying he's just got the basic themes, you know, he's just got the idea there and no, no extra details. It's just the basics. I found Um, his stories. He stripped away everything. (laughs) Basically. Yeah, and I didn't find the idea compelling or interesting. Um, so there was nothing else in the short story for me. If that whole story had been told in the course of a novel, like there's this one with a guy who gets, uh, who becomes really, really intelligent. Now, if we're going for Flowers for Algernon, you can tell a lot more with someone who becomes the most intelligent person in the world over the course of a novel because he could bring in the relationships, he could bring in the technology, he could bring in all the different kinds of things which, which made me cry at the end, you know. Mm. But, it's just like, hey, guys, imagine someone who becomes really, really intelligent. And then the short story is just him explaining how intelligent that person becomes and what it does to him as a person. But like, I didn't really get anything else out of it, really, which is a bit of a, again, that's, a, that's a, maybe a failing of, of mine because lots of people love that story. Or those I do. Understand is a great, great story. Understand, yeah. But again, it's because it, if it was a novel length, there would have probably been a whole lot more of the kinds of stuff that I do enjoy in science fiction along with it. But because it was a short story, all of that was stripped away. I hmm. Flowers for Algernon exist in both forms. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought I had read it before when I read it the second time. But I think it turns out I probably read the short story version first <laughs> and uh-huh. then the novella or novel version later. So, yeah. It's a whole novel. I mean, it, it depends on your definitions, but it's not a long novel. But there's a there's a novel there, and it it marks, for instance, uh, it follows the relationship between the the protagonist and uh, the the woman who is assigned to be his tutor, and the the budding romance and the impossibility of that romance. It it talks about the antagonism that develops between the protagonist and the scientists who make his development possible and withhold from him the likely demise that uh, will follow that development. And there are all kinds of other things. You're, you're, and so there is, uh, there's a d- big difference between the, the short story and the, the novel version in that case. Although in that case, what, what we get is what um, someone might call, I don't mean that this is your use of the term, Jesse, embellishment. Uh, Sometimes, though, when we switch from one form to another, we don't simply get more of the same or add another aspect. We may actually change the meaning somehow, or we may make it into a different kind of art, even though it's that that seems somehow different from from mere length. Uh, So, for instance, a a simple example um, in. the Bells by Poe. Uh, 
Mm. You know, he, he talks about this bells and the that bells, and there there are four different stanzas for it. Um, and the poem has been highly praised for its its sound effects. Um, it turns out that if you if you read the bells, each of the four uh, stanzas is uh, about um, the way sound works. And the first one talks about silver bells. And it's the, the beautiful monody that one hears in melody. Then the second one is golden bells and it's harmony and it's marriage bells. Then the third one is brazen bells and fire erupts. And in the fourth one, it's iron bells. And they are telling this, they're tolling out these death knells and so on. Now, people have mostly praised this poem because of the way the different sounds work to support the different the different sounds in the poem. Um, monody, you know, silver, and so on. But if you read The Black Cat, that is Poe's story, which is substantially longer than the poem, in The Black Cat, we find a protagonist who loved animals as a child. And in fact, he was overly kind to animals. Then he gets married. And after telling us at length about how kind he was to animals, he says, I married a woman who has had a character not uncongenial to my own. Hmm. That's it. That's all he tells us about her. Right. <laughs> so, but he gets, a, she gives him a cat and anybody who knows the story knows that what eventually happens is that the cat, um, trips him up going down the stairs, um, he raises uh, in anger, he raises uh, a hatchet to kill the cat. The wife is there and stays his hand by grabbing the wrist, wrist and he buries the hatchet in her head. That The very next line says, this hideous murder accomplished, and then presto, he walls her up in the basement. I mean, there's no discussion. The next thing that happens is that the, uh, the, the house burns down while he's away. And he comes back and then he's sentenced to death. In other words, the story, which is a fantastic story, goes from being alone to being married to having a fire to going to death. There's a whole story that lays this thing out. And most people take it as a fantastic version of the development of a single character. But if you read the bells... You have the exact same psychological trajectory, except all of those other pieces are left out. It's completely paratactic. One thing just jammed next to the other without any explanation of how you get from here to there. So in a way, from the creator's viewpoint, the underlying psychology is identical. The works of art aren't just different in one being longer than the other and one being in verse and one not being in verse. I think they're different in that they actually ask for a completely different kind of engagement from the reader. In The Black Cat, you're reading this and understanding it as a fantasy. In The Bells, so many people are carried away by its sound effects that they don't even think about the underlying psychological implications of the particular movement from stanza to stanza, which yeah, is they, a weakness. They miss the story, they miss the story mm -hmm. just because of the... Because they don't realize a poem can have a story, even if there isn't one explicitly there. Exactly. And so what I'm trying to suggest is that in addition to, to embellishment, sometimes what we get are radical changes 
that what looks like it might be only a change in length may in fact turn out to be a change in something much more fundamental. Yeah. Indeed. Sometimes it is just embellishment. Like I, I recently saw a, uh, a juggling show by some friends here in Berlin. And a, a few years ago, they did the first version of it. And it's just like a 10-minute juggling act. It's beautiful. And I saw them do it for the first time on stage. And it made me cry. And uh, it was, you know, because it was just, like, amazing. They had a, a cello player on stage who was doing the live music. And it was great. And then last year, they showed a, um, a new version of it, playing the same characters and some of the same juggling. But then it was like a 45-minute show. And... <laughs> which was very, very good. However, in the 45 minutes, they took me through roughly the same emotional journey um, as they did in the seven, eight minute version of the act, except it was spread out over, over a longer time. And for me, I actually preferred to have those different emotional highs and lows in the seven minutes or 10 minutes, not because oh, I don't have a lot of time to watch a long show, but it's, you know, I want a, uh, I want a, uh, a wider range of of emotional responses, a wider range of, um, you know, I'm not just saying emotional like, oh, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling sad, you know, like I want to be impressed and I want to be, you know, enriched and I want to, you know, all these different kind of things that you can get out of a good theatre produ production. Um, but then this year I saw them do another version like because they've been developing it for a year and then I saw another version where it was like a 45-minute show, 50-minute show and then they brought in different emotions again so suddenly it's like now i just want to see the longer version again because they have a, a much wider range of of reactions from the audience a much wider range of like valid well i wouldn't say valid reactions but you know the, the reactions that they're going for there's a lot more comedy in it and there was never much comedy in it before there was like one place where you went uh, but now there's a lot more of that in it um and yeah i just i i, I don't want something just to be longer just to get me more of the same um I want I want you to like use that extra length to be able to bring in more stuff, you know, more peaks and troughs and different kinds of emotions. That's what I want from art. And that, I guess that plays into the into the short stories and novella and novels and things as well. Yeah, you know, Luke, this is exactly in keeping with what you were saying about doing your podcasts, that you have a series of things that you want to be able to discuss and short stories even good short stories typically don't have all of those different kinds of things. And so, you're, you know, it's, it's not good enough. But if you just expand the short story, it still may not have those things. It's just thinner. Um, you're, you're making me remember the etymology of the word text. You know, there, it's not accidental that the word text and the word textile sound alike. You know, they both come from the Latin texere to weave. And I think one way of metaphorizing what you've been suggesting is that you don't mind having just two or three, two or three threads interwoven in a short story. But if you want me to follow the thread out at length, there better be enough threads involved in the weaving that the relations among them lead to an ever greater, richer pattern. There should be a whole piece of cloth that comes out that really matters. And if it's just a network, if it's just three or four threads, but they're strung together to make a big piece of cloth, why, well, you know, it's airy. It can hold one idea, but it really can't hold sustained attention. Um, does Anyway, that's a, it's a metaphor, but it seems to me it's a metaphor that's buried in our language. Yeah, no, I, I, that's... Uh 
that's that's really a, a, a good point. And it comes with my writing as well. Sometimes I think, oh, I'll write this story. And then I start writing and I thought, actually, this isn't this isn't even enough for a short story. Well, not even enough for a short story. But, you know, sometimes I, I think that there's a great idea. But when I actually pare it down and I or pare it down I, and I realize actually there's either way too much to write into a short story or not enough to sustain a novel. But, you know, I, I don't write all the projects that are in my head. But, you know, I want to I want to take people on an interesting journey that I can bring out in different ways i don't know it's a, it's a strange thing yeah yeah, yeah i've got um i've got a, a novel novelette that i read recently that i realized was the pattern for a larger novel that we talked about uh last year or the year before uh earth abides by george r stewart was uh, a very big novel for me i don't i don't I, I don't think it's a massive novel but it's yeah but 16 hours or something like that it's quite long and uh, part of the way that book worked on me was that living in the world uh, with the character having an emotional journey from, you know, midlife to the end of life and seeing his world view change of how he relates to the meaning of existence and the meaning of humanity. Uh, I, think, I think that journey was rather persuasive in perhaps a way that wouldn't have been the same exact journey in a story by Jack London called uh, The Scarlet Plague. I, I hadn't read that novel. I, uh, novel. I hadn't realized that it had existed prior to, to Earth Abides, but it is the exact same story set in the same place huh. <laughs> and just told at, at, by the old man uh, at the end of life about you know what happened in the old days and how things got to be the way they are now. And that he has the exact same problems. His his grandsons and great grandsons don't respect him. Don't think his values are any value. And they tease him. And he's you know instead of being pinched, he's he, you know they give him food with sand in it because he has no teeth. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it it it's emotional. But I'm not sure that uh, had I read that first that I would have had the profoundly persuasive. Um, uh, effect upon me because it was it is so short compared to Earth Abides. Yeah, with and, Earth Abides, you need to go on that same long journey with him to understand where he gets to at the end. I guess I yeah. think that's right, and uh, I mean I can really see um, why if George R. Stewart read it and adapted it <laughs> uh, for his own, why he thought that might have needed to be done because it. I think it's it, it might be just too easily dismissed. I think people do just treat short stories and shorter works as objects uh, of training or something. They, they see them as um, something to, uh, to while away a few minutes, not something to be taken. People who study literature don't tend to say, let's go study some short stories. They tend to talk about novels or, you know, if you've got a book club, it is a novel club or a non-fiction book length club it's not a short fiction uh and i i oh, if it is it's a collection of short stories you know. even even so yeah it's it, it tends to be you know not it, they tend to pick novels or series or something like that and i think it it might be because we don't we can't always be persuaded by the brilliance of an idea we also have to be persuaded by its 
prevalence and in this in a way you know people don't believe things just because they're reported on the news they have to also see other people um reacting to it to have the effect that that makes it real to them and i think novels because of their their length are act in a certain way as like a community would to a to an individual um they're soaking in that world for a length of time you know it is a, a soul experience usually you're reading a, a novel you sit down it's several hours of reading and that is more time with an idea than is say um a short story so we can imagine fahrenheit 451 as a short story and in fact i do believe it is several short stories um but notice nobody talks about the firemen <laughs> they talk about Fahrenheit 451. Right. I think it, it, it is something about the, the length of a novel that seems to have the effect, uh, at least in terms of larger larger conversations. Yeah, I, I also think it's sort of just with a novel or even a series or something like that, I think the novel is, is, is important in that way. I, I think, like you say, if you get an idea and then it plays out like so often I'll, I'll read a short story and it sort of goes, here's an idea or here's a world or here's a character. And then I close the book. And if I sit and think about it, I'll go, OK, what happens next? Or this could do this or this could do that or this could do this or this character could be thinking that, you know, and it kind of plays out in your head as but there's a disconnect there. You know, if you do something else, then you don't think about it anymore or you have mm -hmm. to kind of take time to think about it or maybe I'm not sure. But then with a novel, it'll set up an idea and you'll be thinking, oh, maybe this could happen next. And then you read to see if it does happen next. Or maybe the character will be acting like this in the, in the next part of the story. And then you read on and you actually get More participatory. It. So, yeah, so it's much more particip yeah, participatory. And so as you're reading it, it's, it's either confirming or denying your expectations. And when you get to the end of a chapter and you put it aside and then you come back the next day and continue reading it, you've got a full day's worth of thinking about yeah. what's going to happen next or what could happen next. And then you continue reading it and it can be what you thought or it might not be what you thought. But, you know, it can go it can go either way in that way. Um <clears throat> So I think that's important. And the same thing can happen in between books in a series, like you finish a, a book and you know there's another book coming in. I think if you read a book and know that there's more story coming in the next part of the series, it, it kind of sticks with you a bit more. You kind of, oh, it does with me anyway. I, I kind of ponder a book even after doing, like after reading it and even after doing a review, when I know that I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start reading the next book in the series next week, I kind of, like, I can feel my brain going, oh, this could be happening or that could be happening or this could be happening. And, and that kind of is missing from short stories or maybe even a novella or whatever you can read in one sitting and then is complete and you leave it behind. You're kind of missing that function that I think novels and series can bring in. I think everything that you you guys are saying is is right. I I, I think that I, I'd like to make a, a specific comment um, and then go to uh, a larger uh, one that bounces off that and what you've just been saying about this completeness, this notion of of having enough experience of enough coordinated and diverse kinds in the reading of a novel that it sticks with you in a way that a short story doesn't and it gives you more to chew on and and it should or else why spend the time reading it you might as well just read a bunch of short stories <laughs> right this the specific comment is that i think that that 
Earth Abides, which I haven't read in quite a while, and I certainly haven't read The Scarlet Plague in a long time, but I've read them both. Uh, I thought you were in the podcast with us. Didn't you do the podcast? Yeah, I did. Us? I did. Yeah, but oh, it's, okay. been, it's been a while. Um, my recollection, though, is I haven't looked through the book recently. My recollection is that the end of Earth Abides shows the protagonist, now an old man, sitting on the ruined, partially ruined roadbed of the Golden Gate Bridge. He is between two worlds, as it were. And that's the role that he has had in the book as a whole, metaphorically, conceptually, technologically. Uh, and the bridge itself is there not simply as a handy place for him to sit and get a vantage, but to tell us something about the notion of bridging, of the getting from here to there. That is to say, and I'm just using this as a short example, Stewart's novel is about the failures of our faith in technology. It's about the ways in which the modern world does not really make promises that it can fulfill, that there are things beyond us, and we encounter them in one thing after another, whether it's the the work of the protagonist, which is as a scientist to begin with, or it's the daily technologies that we all encounter, as in all of those automobiles that he tries to keep running and using, or it's what we think of as permanent infrastructure like the bridge. And then we see that necessity actually bends us to different technologies with the rise of the bow and arrow. So just taking this one thread, again, from weaving, of technology, that use of technology really ramifies into a whole critique of the notion of progress and the reliance on science that marks our world in 1948 or whenever it is that Earth Abides was published. And this is quite different, I think, from the much simpler notion that London offers of, well, you know, nature is more powerful than we are. So Stewart is, is asking us, in a way, to think in detail of what this means rather than just letting it be out there for us. And in a way, London is is building on Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. You know, like, ooh, ooh it's scary. And, and London is making a wider point. And then Stuart is building on London by saying, yes, nature is more powerful than we are, but it's not just nature. It's we humans who constitute part of nature. See what that's like when we are more visibly part of it, like when we re revert to being the, those who use the technology of Native Americans. So there's, I think there are extra threads, and that's what validates it. So to make that the more general point, um, when... I mean, I've tried to do this, guys. Um, when I first started teaching science fiction, I was concerned with the difference between science fiction short stories as the sort of dominant expression of the field, which it was in the 1940s and 50s, certainly in America, and the novel, which was the dominant expression of the field from the 1960s on. And so in order to have my students understand this, I would assign one novel and two short stories a week. I was using the Science Fiction Hall of Fame that's before it was called Volume 1. It was when it was first available, Robert Silverberg's terrific collection of short stories. And it happens to have 26 stories in it. And it happens that we had 13 weeks worth of assignments in a 14-week semester. So I give my students 
uh, a requirement of a novel and two short stories. And then they were supposed to write a one-page paper on each of the week's reading. Um, there were other requirements as well. And what I discovered is that if a student turned in his or her writing on one of the short stories, at least half the time they hadn't bothered to read the novel. Later, I had the experience, and I have continued to have it, with reading groups that read short stories. In fact, in our reading group, at your suggestion, we read Ted Chang. Mm -hmm. uh, terrific, terrific stuff. Um, and even though everybody in this group of voluntarily committed readers of fantasy and science fiction spoke highly of what they read, some of those just didn't have the time to finish everything. You know, there is a sense of separability that you get with short stories. They're supposed to be nuggets. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that means, you know, one of the reasons that novels stick with us more than collections is that the collections don't always amount to anything. But if you take those stories and you make them into what I've called a composite novel, when you get Winesburg, Ohio... You know, you remember individual stories in there, but Winesburg, Ohio becomes the book that keeps in your mind. And it's not, oh, well, you know, what a great collection. It's got these different stories. Or, you know, I loved Araby. I loved the dead. But, you know, Dubliners builds up a sense of life in that city that's more than any of the stories. And well, I that's think that's, not, that's not a fix-up novel, though, because a fix-up no, novel it's is not. like a continuing, it's like a series of short stories rather than just a collection of short stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that term fix-up is from Van Vaux, I think. He's the one mm -hmm. who first coined it. And he really meant it in the most crass way, I think, that, you know, if they're all set more or less in the same area and they have connectable events, you can fix them up so that they can be passed off as a novel. It was a way right. of making more money when the publishing modes were changing. But I think, um, as I may have, in fact, mentioned to you folks before, there are some examples like the Martian Chronicles where there are clear changes that are made between the original short story publication of a work and the later publication of that work as part of the book as a whole. And, and frankly, um, I know from years of teaching the Martian Chronicles, my students don't look at it. I mean, the, uh, many of them come to it and say, oh, look, we have a book of short stories for next week. Mm -hmm. But when we get to discussing it, they always treat it as a book, not a collection of short stories. Because mm -hmm. Bradbury has managed to do something with them. Also, the fact that a third of the, the sections in the Martian Chronicles weren't previously published. He didn't just fix it up. He he left out a couple of things he'd already written in that Martian Chronicles world because they didn't fit the, the volume. And he created others to make for uh, a connected story that, that works, not so much in terms of plot, but in its philosophical uh, movements. Yeah, there's Accelerando as well, which is in some notes that we'll put here as well. By uh, Is it Charlie Strauss? Accelerando? Yeah. Yeah, I read that. I didn't realize it was like it, it's kind of a fix-up, but it's in. But also, it's like a, a composite. Or what do you say? It? Yeah. Uh, 
did you, is that what they think? A composite novel? I don't know. Yeah, a composite know novel. Yeah. Um, so and when I started reading that, I was like, well, this is weird. And even when I got to review it, it was a bit strange because I had to, like, I'd read it as a novel. So I was trying to kind of, like, review it as a novel even though there was individual there was like i think there's nine stories and five of them i really enjoyed and four of them or was it like four of them i really enjoyed and five of them just fell flat for me but i didn't read them as individual stories and i tried to make sense of them as an entire series like as an entire novel and um and i was like yeah but like the cat character who was like the cat is important in this one and then the cat goes away and then the cat's mentioned here but then it doesn't make sense because now the cat's a different thing and then i uh I think I listened to a podcast with Charles Dross and he said, yeah, the cat actually changes function. And in one, in, in, in one story, the cat is actually a city. And in another story, the cat is like uh, the mother of the hero. And, uh, you know, I can't even remember the examples that he used, but it's like th- it was specifically written, not as a novel where all of the characters start off and then go through to the end. I had other problems with some of the stories and other problems with the science and some of the way that it went and the overall story. But um, I actually thought it was interesting that he was acknowledging with the characters themselves that, hey, this isn't actually a single story. Um which, when I tried to read it as a single story, I think was a was a big knock against it, a big point uh, point against it. But yeah, sorry he was actually... to say that I agree with you. I, I thought that the but, first section, the the one that it's named after, uh, if I recall yeah. correctly, that was dynamite. That was yeah. just really terrific. But the idea that the rate of acceleration is going to increase itself, that is, the second derivative is positive as well as the first derivative, um, is what drives the the collection. Which, if I recall, it's the three. It's not just nine sections, but they're really three sections of three as yeah, we move that's from. The, yeah. So from where we are and who are the main, with the main relationship between the male and female character, who are the touchstones for the whole book, and it it kind of felt like, okay, I have an intellectual framework here, and I intend to fulfill it, <laughs> and so he did, and when he did it in ways that had other reasons to exist, there was enough going on collectively that there was a dense experience that really, I think, moved one. And the man's writing skill is extraordinary. I've only read the first... just filled in, not so much. I've only read the first story of that collection. Uh And I remember it quite well, and I I thought it was really interesting. Lobsters? I can't remember. Yeah, it's lobsters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Uh, great. I thought it was really interesting, and I've read other Charles Strauss, but not not any of the other stories that are in this mm. fix-up or whatever it is. They do um, kind of fit together. But that's but not it, a fix-up, though, because it's clear that he wrote them always. And once he got the reaction to them, and remember he was issuing them as free downloads along the way, once he got what was going on, he was writing the other pieces to fit into that framework. Yes. Whereas what Van Vo means is you just sort of have a framework, the way Heinlein had his notion of future history. And then you you write the stories and say, oh, hey, you know, I could make these into a book if I just did a little such and such. But the thing is, Rando was that the framework, I I think it fit his intellectual exercise, but I don't think it fit a good story and that was when i was reading it that was actually kind of what you go that's what i go for when i'm reading a like something which i think is a novel i'm thinking okay there's going to be a story here but in the end the acceleration just became like a generic doomsday end of the world thing that the the characters had to kind of get around or 
do sort like live with or sort something out with you know it was just sort of like a, a generic threat out there in a different part of the solar system that's all it felt like for me by the end of the novel and it didn't really add um you know by the end of the novel it, uh, or by the end of the fix up or composite or whatever it was going to be you know like this uh, uh this form that he went for i think the story really suffered by the end of it um yeah i yeah i i think he intended it as a composite um yeah but i don't think that it had the it began to i, I don't think that it had the the evenness of artistic purpose as opposed to intellectual framework that you find in the Martian Chronicles, that you find in Winesburg, Ohio, that you find in Hemingway's In Our Time. I mean, there's there's something going on in these other works that makes the composite into a genuine novel rather than legitimating the collection of a bunch of different stories together. Okay. Well, we mentioned the, you just mentioned uh, um, Asimov with his uh, future history and robots and foundation series. Should we talk a bit about that? Like, uh, no, no, it's Heinlein who has the future history. Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm getting mixed up there. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Heinlein, remember, had that map, you know, where he yeah, said, yeah. Of yeah. Uh, right. No, sorry, I'm getting, I was getting mixed up between, yeah, the future history and the, the robot the history. Yeah, the psycho history and all, and all those, uh, uh, the way that these authors sort of like had a kind of, uh, over overarching narrative to all of their fiction, and there's been quite a few authors who have done this. Of course, I'm I'm never sure if they if they do it at the beginning when they first start. Okay, I'm going to have this story, and I'm going to tell that story. I'm going to tell this story over here, uh, and then it seems to be quite a few of them like put it in afterwards. Like Moorcock, I'm not sure how much of his um, what is it Universal Hero? No, what's it called? Um, what's what's his character that is always is throughout? Cornelius. Uh, as you know, I've not read enough of his stuff. Um, but anyway, there's that, that he is the same character that kind of loops through so much of his uh, his fiction. Um, yeah, I, I often wonder, like, how much is this set out at the beginning of their writing career, or if is it like like Asimov, who no way, there's no way that he ever thought that the Foundation and Robot series would ever tie together until about thirty years after he started, mm. five years right. after he started it. Um, so that's an interesting thing about series like that. iRobot is often treated as a novel. I it's, would treat it as a novel. Yeah. But again, a composite novel. Um, yeah. I mean, oh, the, the individual story, I mean, the first one was, was Robbie. Um, it, it seems clear that it has nothing to do with the, the, the envelope world of iRobot. It's a story about a robot nanny. And people being worried about having robots around, but this nanny robot sacrifices herself and so on. So you've got these three laws of robotics that presumably Campbell gave to Asimov, who then worked them up. Or maybe, in fact, Campbell was taking credit where it wasn't due. And then each of the stories fits under those three laws of robotics. But when he began to see what was going on with these, I think it became clear to Asimov that he needed something else to make a novel out of it. And the interstitial activity having to do with Susan Calvin, with the robo-psychologist, is crucial. And the last two stories in iRobot, she is a character in those stories. She's not just there interstitially. Uh, so it seems to me it's very important to realize that even though the stories initially were just published as other versions of stories that were puzzles proving the 
adaptability of the three laws of robotics, Asimov developed an idea which he then continued to write out at length by writing stories and then including the interstitial world that maps out that larger envelope into the story so that when it culminates, the last scene in the novel, or the last scene in the book, I would call it a composite novel, the last scene in the book is between Stephen Byerly, the world administrator, who may or may not be a robot, and Susan Calvin. I mean, so she goes from being someone whom you hear about in between chapters as someone who g helps guide the development of U.S. robotics or universal robotics, I forget the name of the company now, um, to actually being a crucial individual in the last story, which is the story that culminates the book and puts the final message that we are to take away on the notion of the three laws of robotics. He's Asimov yeah. has gotten us further. Yeah. It, it, it's it's funny if you ever talk with people who who, who um, haven't read, I guess Asimov, and you talk about uh, what robot when robots are going to be uh, like people when robots are you know they they respond as it as people do even if it's programmed. Um, they just assume that they'll be slaves and property. <laughs> and <laughs> if you talk with people who've read iRobot, I think that that's less. That assumption doesn't tend to just yeah. be there. Right. Um, and it, I think it would be the book rather than the individual short stories that does that. Yeah. Um, because of the emotional journey that you go on, it, it, each individual story might uh, be a chunk, but it it, it might be like. Um, if, if we're going for extended metaphors, you know how uh, how you need a certain level of uh, a certain dose of um, an inoculation to to get the effect. Yeah. Um, if you don't have, uh, if you just have, you know, a mild exposure, it might not be enough. You need yeah. to have the full dose. Otherwise, uh, it won't it won't take the effect that you yeah. want. I think there is length, but I think uh, I, I think there is also. I realize this is too also this is also a metaphor there is there is aesthetic power um when I first read iRobot which was as a kid um I couldn't help but notice that the three laws of robotics were working their way out and successfully making sure that human beings were benefited by the existence of robots to the story that stuck most in my mind um uh, about this was the one where the robot is set up to uh, guide a satellite that gathers sunlight and beams it down to a collection oh, yeah. station on the face of the Earth. And if that robot errors in any way, that enormously powerful beam of, of energy is going to destroy human beings. So the two technicians, Donovan and Powell, set QT10 or whatever his initials are up and now he's going to have to run the thing because he can do it better than a human being could. And then they get into a debate. I think that the, the chapter is called Reason. Yep. Um, and he, the robot, throws away the idea that human beings created him since he's clearly superior to human beings. You know, he just dismisses their arguments. And at the end of the story, the humans conclude, well, you know what? Even if we know he's wrong, it doesn't matter that he's wrong because, mm -hmm. you know, he is going to serve humanity for whatever his way of thinking about it is, yeah. doesn't matter. He will serve humanity. So I read this. That was the most powerful story to me. 
And when I came back to the book years later, I read the the last story, um, the inevitable conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that last story, Stephen Byerly is in his office and he's having an interview with a discussion with Susan Calvin. And Susan Calvin acknowledges that many people think that Stephen Byerly, the world administrator, may in fact be a robot, and they're worried about that. Uh, and she's trying to figure out, is he a robot or is he a man? And so she asks him, and who could better do it than she? Um, and she can't figure it out, and she asks him, and he declines to respond. And the last image of the story, which therefore is the last image in the printed book, um, he has a fireplace in his office, it's behind a quartz fire screen, and we see the light going out, the flame going out, and a thread of smoke comes up. And I read this, and I thought, holy mackerel. I thought the robots were getting us closer and closer to a positive utopia. And here's the last image of the book of the light dying. This just this doesn't make any sense. How could that be the last image of the book? Because right? now it's not just a matter of one. See, if it were just one story, I could interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's this whole book. How could that be the last image of the book? So I was having a, a friendly collegial conversation one day with a colleague of mine who was uh, a very distinguished art historian. And... Uh, I mentioned this difficulty of reading things in and out of context. And she looked at me and she said, why, that's the Marode altarpiece. And I said, huh? (laughs) And she explained to me the Marode altarpiece is a very famous example of a medieval iconographic trope. In this medieval trope, we have an annunciation scene. The angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary that she will bear the Christ child. And the way this scene is depicted, typically Mary is sitting at a table reading the Bible, meaning at that point the Old Testament, um, and there is a candle on the table to illuminate the book so that she can read it. And rays of divine light come from Gabriel across the room, either to Mary's head or to her womb, depending upon the notion of the Annunciation. And they cross the candle. And the candle is shown as having a wisp of smoke coming out of it rather than a flame. My colleague, Eileen Forsyth, explained to me that the medieval painters painted that wisp of smoke not to indicate that the flame had gone out, but that in comparison to an earthly flame, the divine light was so great that the earthly flame looked as if it were only smoke. So that smoke does not symbolically represent the end of light. It represents the move to an even greater light. When you read the last part of the inevitable conflict that way, when you realize that Isaac Asimov also published Asimov's Guide to the Bible, Then, suddenly, what had looked like it was a dystopian ending that could work in the short story had to be a utopian ending that works for the book as a whole. 
Now, there, it seems to me, is a case where we've got two radically different interpretations. If we read the, that chapter as if it were a short story, I think most people who don't have an art history background are likely to read it as dystopian. Hmm. But if the book as a whole makes you read it as utopian, suddenly knowing that this can be justified makes that last section, the inevitable conflict, absolutely a glorious promise about the value of robots in our future. And Asimov is by far the most progress-minded and pro-scientific of the, the most well-known science fiction writers. Personally, personally, I think you're reading too much into that again. I'm going to have to call bullshit on that again. No, 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 I, I, I don't think I don't think Asimov was being that clever. I really don't think that you can read all of that symbolism into that one image at the end of the book um, because he is so progress minded. Um, I again, I don't think I don't I think he was just finishing off a book or finishing off a series of short stories into a novel. Um, I think that if you read that novel in the context of the the rest of his work where um spoiler uh daniel oliver what was his name what's the oliver. other oliver. oliver yeah suddenly turns up in the foundation and he's been in the same way as this supreme leader of the world may or may not have been a robot he's been pulling the strings for the entire time he's been mm -hmm. doing the zeroth law which is looking after the whole of humanity um again if, if you read it in the greater context i don't think it's i don't think that one end to that one story is can comment on the entire body of of Asimov's work and his oh, only comments on the on the book as a whole right uh, again I don't think that book is it can be seen as indicative of this entire body of work which came many decades in some cases decades and decades later um, I'm saying Luke I'm not understanding you I'm saying that in the stories that are in iRobot yeah each one of them seems to promise good but the image at the end of the last story does not. But I, if you okay. don't read it as promising bad, but think, hmm, why is it here at all? Suddenly you find, oh my gosh, that very same image exists for hundreds of years meant to promise good. And it does fit. I, do, I think the entire I, I robot the, the entire fix-up novel or composite novel or whatever you say, I think it's a lot more ambiguous than... than most people read it or what other people read it because yeah sure at the end of each story there's something going wrong but i i think it's like yeah sure no at the end of each story there's something going right yes okay so there, there's something goes wrong and then something goes right through it but i think it's it's more of a test of the laws because people nowadays they think oh you know a robot of course we'll create the robots with with three laws all i see with with irobot is how these these laws ca can work out but there's so much trouble they're, they're so floppy. We can't rely on three laws to sort out the, our entire world's problems. We can't rely on just three laws to sort out all of the problems of robots. It's, every single story shows that everything is way more complex than that. And even, like, no, say, even, I'm sorry, it, Luke. Every single story shows that it's right, that the three laws are adequate. That's no, part of the like, point. That's why they are fairy tale laws. That notion of, you know, or let a human come to harm, somehow magically the robots always know what constitutes harm. And the, the device that makes this possible is what Asimov decides to call a positronic brain, mm -hmm. which, of course, you can say, oh, well, it's a positron as opposed to an electron. But the fact of the matter is it's a positive brain. Uh, where, which of these stories ends where you think, oh, gosh, maybe the robots aren't doing a good thing? They all end with a good thing. 
it's not that they don't end with a good thing. I'm just saying that along the way, all you get is problems. That's that's no. what along the way we always get what we think are problems. The only time there's a real problem in all of iRobot is when one of the robot's creators messes with the positronic brain. All of the robots that are created according to the three laws all function properly. We just don't understand that. Uh, 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 the way I look at the book, it's more like a um, it's it's about people. It's not about robots. Well, right? of course. That's it's, what Susan Calvin says. The only difference between a robot and a human being is that robots are essentially decent. <laughs> well, uh, even the end, the end story with the you know the robot possibly in charge. Um, the idea is a, a robot is someone who takes his fellow man's interest to heart, but won't uh, take them so to heart as to harm other people. And generally looks after the uh, interests of of it's basically being a good person. They're just laws for for not being an asshole and fucking things up. And and that that uh, ambiguity at the end, whether he's a robot or not, to me, uh, I never read it as dystopia. I, I I didn't even recognize that as being a. I just thought, oh, what a weird ending. Or you know, not. I I probably didn't even think anything about just a. The, the last visual image, it's just, it just, oh, that's the end. And I was thinking more about the stuff that preceded it, which is whether this guy is a robot or not doesn't matter because a robot is, it's more like the bicentennial man. You know, it's, it's a robot is a man uh, who just wasn't born. He was manufactured. And that's why I think that it's a positive utopian vision. The notion that a man that the essentially decent human being, if, if Stephen Byerly isn't a robot, then he is essentially decent. And aren't we lucky that such people exist? To the extent that this book is about human beings, you're, I think you're quite right. It's giving us much of a model to live by. On the other hand, um, I, again, I think I, Luke I is right agree. that I think Luke is right that those three laws of robotics do make each robot a slave ultimately, yes. to human desire. And I don't believe that the book is asking us as humans to function as slaves. No. And, and notice that there's an evolution there. So he doesn't have to uh, do... If he is a robot and he declines to answer, um, he is disobeying one of the laws. And yet the overriding law is that you do what's best. Exactly. Right? And it's best that human beings not know. So there you go. Perhaps, yeah. yes. Uh, okay, way. I think I don't want to keep. I could keep going on to this, but I think we've got to move on <laughs> with this podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, it's we're never going to get to like my main. Again, my main point in bringing this up wasn't actually to come up with another composite novel with with iRobot. Was to actually talk more about the worlds that they were set in, like the robot series and the and the Foundation series. But maybe it's best. To Asimov move on. is a very odd case in that he's been able to take the short story form, make it into a composite novel. He's been able to take the novel form and turn it into the trilogy. After all, the Foundation trilogy got a special Hugo Award as the best series ever. He's been able to take the trilogy form and take a novel and build it into a trilogy that clearly had not at first been planned, that is Caves of Steel. And Then he takes those two different trilogies and brings them together to make one enormous saga of yeah. nine different books. I mean, Asimov has a way of recontextualizing and somehow backing and filling that 
I, I can't think of any other writer who's been that successful in, in working in all of these different forms. But oh, yeah, it does seem to me that part of the pleasure of reading Asimov, it, that is the whole of it, is just to see his cleverness, cleverness at work. It's not that he really needed to write a nine-volume series to get across what he was after. Yeah, I think each of the stories, I think, I mean, all of these different things that he's done could have been told in separate worlds without linking them together. But there are so many things that link together so well in them. Like you were just saying before about uh, the Susan Calvin, is that the name? Oh, Calvin, yeah. Yeah, Calvin. Um, and, and so she is just a character in the background and then she becomes a main character by the end of the story. Now, he did the same thing with Harry Seldon. At the beginning, he wasn't a character. He was just a guy. I mean, you, you sort of see him through the eyes of other people and then he turns back up throughout the, the, the history of the Foundation um, uh, or the Foundation novels, not the Foundation itself because we don't, don't find out right. about that. But then in his later novels, Harry Seldon is now suddenly a main character and we discover why he's doing what he's doing and the impact that he did and how he set it up and how he worked this out and works that out. You know, and either other authors were brought in to sort of complete his story in a way, I think, um, unnecessarily so. But, you know, it still still came in anyway. Um, and uh, and it, again, the same thing kind of happens with the with the um, our Daniel robot as well. Again, he's always he's always there, but then later on you sort of see more and more importance as he comes through. You know, he, he takes these characters which are important, but sort of important in the background, and then brings them out and makes them their own characters. Um, and he and he did that. I, with I, I, Asimov. Um, this what I'm about to say is not meant to detract from him, yeah. but Asimov was one of the most skillful science fiction businessmen ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if he created a work that got people excited, he tried to figure out a way to resell that property. Right. So, you know, Disney has his characters running around in his theme parks and on T-shirts and on lunchboxes. And Asimov did the same thing. This character worked fine in this novel in the background and people were kind of interested in him. Let's give him his own darn novel. You know, I just he just kept going. I don't mean that he didn't try to give value for the money when you bought that new novel, but he was happy to sell the hook. Yeah. There is a, a, an author that I want to talk about now uh, uh, as well who, who's kind of doing the same thing. I'm not quite sure what's going on, but it's Brandon Sanderson, who is this uh, a fantasy author. Uh, and he released two books or like a series of books and then a standalone book and then another standalone book. And now he's released another book, which is the start of a big series. So we've actually got kind of like four worlds be like in it that he's written in fantasy novels anyway. Um, and then as I was reading it, like this character came up and I was like, Hey, wait a second. Wasn't he in this other novel over here? I recognize that character's name. Who's this? And then, um, by looking a bit online, it actually turns out that all of his fantasy series and all of his fantasy novels are actually set in the same, not even in the same universe, but in the same multiverse. Um, and there's actually been one event at the beginning of this multiverse, which sort of like split apart the different worlds into the different realms, I guess you could call it. But each one of them is a different planet with different magic and different characters and different things. But um, but suddenly, like when I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, these four novels, which are written in with four different kinds of magic and four, the way that they all actually fit together. And I just thought, oh, this is the kind of thing that he writes about. He writes about people who 
can become gods and become does. I think, well, he's a Mormon. So, of course, he's going to write about people who eventually go on and uh, and develop and get the power of gods and then get their own thing. And I think it is very much tied into his own personal, well, not his personal religion, but his religion of Mormonism, which, again, by the end of it, you each you each become a god in charge of your own universe and that's kind of what he's writing about in his in like in the, like the story that all of his novels tell but only if you read them all these series if you read all of them individually you would never get but between them all they're going to tell a story i think of some kind of um wider theology and wider story wider mythology between the different novels which uh which i didn't realize until i read the fourth first novel in a series by him yeah now, I have not read this person's work at all, but I'm very curious to, to know from you, Luke, when you came to understand this bigger story, did it add value to you to the readings of each of the individual novels? Uh, no, because I think I'd already read them into his novels. Like I say, a lot of his novels are about um, people and uh, cities and people becoming gods or like like people who wouldn't have normally been a god sort of like attaining that godhood of course this is a trope which goes through loads and loads of science uh, lots of science fiction and lots of fantasy but the way that he would write it like the the gods were always seem to have human human roots um and knowing that he's a mormon i could i kind of got that anyway um and i think the wider story is still going to take a, a a lot maybe another few novels and more series for him to actually bring about it was only when i recognized this name and i was like hey wait a second wasn't he in this other novel that i read um and uh, yeah so I, I there's there's it's there anyway and i think i was picking up on the benefits of him writing his novels in this way before i actually knew that's what he was doing that he'd actually mentioned on his blog and other people have been writing about it as well so uh, well, it seems to me that if 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 you could pick it up um uh, that may have to do with your terrific sensitivity, um, but it also may be that it was already implicit in those novels. And so the question then is raised for me, um, what more do you get out of seeing the same story again and again? Last week I was at a, uh, at a, a, a group where we discussed graphic narrative. Uh, the, the book before us was uh, Daniel uh, Clow's the Death Ray, which is, in fact, uh, a variety of science fiction, and it plays off the motifs of superhero comic books. Um, and this is a group of people who've read a lot of graphic narrative. So pretty much everybody in the group had also read other books by Klaus, like Ice Haven, David Boring, Wilson, uh, Ghost World. Uh, he gets terrific reviews in the New York Times book review. Each of the books is really excellent. By the time we were done, everybody in the room uh, fully acknowledged the skill behind the death ray. But half of the people in the room said, well, you know, basically, Klaus's point is that a lot of us are stuck as being 14-year-olds. And I don't think I'm getting any more out of it. I don't think... I ever want to read another one of his books. And this is being said of someone whom everyone acknowledged to be a skillful and important artist. <laughs> and that's why I'm asking about the what it meant to make explicit to yourself what was going on in these four books. If it was implicit all along and you were sensing it all along, maybe, darn it, it's just not worth doing it again. At a certain point, you just don't want to bother. 
point is that each one of his books, although to be honest, there was one book of his called Elantris that I didn't actually finish because I, I it was his first novel. It just wasn't very good. Um, but the other ones I've read and really enjoyed. Uh, but each in each one of them, he does bring out a different a different aspect, a different idea. Um, sure, they're all sort of set here. This one's set in this city and this one's set in this city. And you get like this similar kinds of protagonists. But he he can write a good story. So even if you're not doing that, it's still just an enjoyable story. He, he writes really interesting magic and interesting action scenes and all these other kind of stuff. But yes, his thematic ideas even in the series the longer series where you can kind of see where things are going um it's not always the same story some in in the the one mistborn there's a, a story of a guy who becomes a god and you're never quite sure what's going on and you kind of like as you go through you kind of work out what's going on you realize what his powers are and what's going on and it's not a good story it's a story about someone who failed it's about sorry like uh, you know like these legends it's sort of like if you take this path the world will be right and if you take this path the world will collapse and someone took the second path. You know, it, it starts off like millions of years ago, there was this big epic triumph, but actually it wasn't a triumph. Everything failed. You know, he actually says that like the back of the book is like, that's the starting point of the book. So it's not always the same exploration, but it's definitely there in the background um, for me anyway, as I'm reading this. Um, I guess I, 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 you know, I just haven't read the stuff. I, I, the, the question I'm asking and I, I can only understand what you're telling me and uh, i'm still a little uncertain how my reaction would be <clears throat> i think of something like the alexandria quartet where durell has four people's story all told in one setting at one cultural moment but they are four different people much of the plot overlaps from story to story from novel to novel i should say but the point of the alexandria quartet is larger than any one of those novels because the point of the Alexandria Quartet has to do with the relationship between subjectivity and objectivity, which is made palpable by realizing how hard it is for people in any given position to realize that what they are seeing is a projection of themselves onto their world. And each different viewpoint shows a different difficulty in that kind of projection. It seems to me that collectively, they do more than any one of them can do individually, which is why it's worth reading them as a quartet, as opposed to, say, the, the typical science fiction or fantasy trilogy where you need to read to the end just because it's really a very long novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Again, I, you know, I'm not sure about that because, like I say, I, I generally, when it comes to these big fantasy series i read the first book in a series and if there's another five books well i might get to read them later but there's probably a lot of other first books in series that i can try to see which of these very very long stories i want to stick with so i guess in this case it might take me another 20 years to actually finish off the rest of his fantasy it might take 20 years to write it so i don't know you know exactly what can come up. but uh uh, but there is there is stuff there. You know, it is more well, than just... Well, that's precisely my point, and that's why I raised it when we were talking about people reading short stories, that when I assigned a collection of short stories to people, I found that they would allow one short story or another to substitute for the rest of the week's reading, figuring, well, you know, I'm busy, and at least I had something to write my essay about. Whereas yeah. when what I assign is the Martian Chronicles or iRobot, no one fails to finish those works. Even though they may look like they're composed of short stories, they're doing something else, and they need to be read as wholes, even though the pieces of the wholes can be understood in part by thinking of them as short stories. 
is get somebody to read it backwards and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Start with the well, last story the, and work your way forward. In the case of the Martian Chronicles, that's how they were written. Right. Right. right? Million Year okay. Picnic is the last chapter, and it was published first. Mm-hmm. So. You know, with my own novels that I'm writing, um, I'm, I'm kind of doing a similar kind of thing in that, for me, they're all set in the same, or they can be set in the same universe with the same kind of rules, um, which I actually really enjoy when I see other uh, other authors doing the same thing, like Alistair Reynolds with his, um, with his Revelation Space World. He explores different aspects of it, even though there's like a trilogy, but then there's lots of other stories and lots of short stories and lots of novella-length ones and other novels which are all set in the same world. Um, but the way that I'm doing it, it's, it, 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 again, it's, there, there's actually a fantasy book and some alien science fiction and some near-future science fiction, which should all be set in the same world, but there's like l- very little overlap now but maybe in the future it's going to overlap a lot more if you know what i mean so i'm actually depending on how long my writing career is well it's not a career it's a hobby um but i do know that people have read one book and then read another book and then read another book and then there's also like the the meta story that goes around the actual storytelling itself which is uh, another another layer which i explore in some other fiction which i don't think i've published that yet but there is there is other things there as well um but again i don't know how much of this is going to come out in the reading or how much it's just there in the writing and informing it. I don't know. I want to bring up something uh, when uh, Eric, you mentioned the Alexandria quartet and I hadn't even heard of that. So I I looked it up and, and then I was thinking uh, what Luke was saying. And I was thinking, you know, there's an example of somebody who's done both and it's not in science fiction exactly, but uh, it's so well known. I think that, there might be some value to be mined there, and that's uh, the Sherlock Holmes series of short stories, which are often collected, often not collected, and four novels. And what's interesting there is three of the novels are really not well-known. One is extremely well-known, and then several of the short stories are extremely well-known, and little bits of several of the other stories are well-known, but the general effect is not changed by missing large parts of any of it most of the people i know who i actually have a friend who is one of those baker street irregulars you know Mm -hmm. uh, he just you know goes to monthly meetings and so on um most of the people i know and according to his report this is true of the people he knows who are uh committed lovers of the sherlock holmes stories um they are not interested in figuring out who done it Right after the first reading, mm-hmm. they know who done it. The thing that most attracts people to Sherlock Holmes is the idea that they are in a palpable world, and they love that sense of description, the the the, the kind of England that that is. Mm-hmm. Right, they just love the power of the description, and in that world, they are able to believe that justice can prevail. There is someone powerful enough to be able to set things right. And that feeling is a terrifically reassuring feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people return to his books and his short stories because they want to get that feeling again. In Somewhere in the Enchafed Flood, W.H. Auden says that the fantasy of the tale of the great detective is that hidden guilt will be revealed. Mm. And I, I think 
Doyle gave us that in an absolutely gorgeous form. You never doubt that Holmes will have the resources necessary. So much so that when he knocks him off at the Reichenbach Falls, um, it really doesn't bother his fans very much that he was able to grasp onto a, a chute sticking out of the side of the wall and climb back up. I mean, he can always do it. And, but but Doyle makes that believable. And Even when the author's trying to kill him. <laughs> even Exactly. Even when the author's trying to kill him. Even when he's trying to kill him. There, there's, uh, one of the stories is called The Speckled Band, I think. Mm-hmm. And in it, the the woman who presents the problem to uh, to uh, Holmes comes in. I think her name is Helen Stoner. I don't know why I should remember that. Um, comes in and explains the difficulty. Um, and she leaves and almost and very quickly thereafter, someone else comes in. I think it's her uncle. Anyway, a very gruff person and says that he should that Holmes had better keep his nose out of this subject. He reaches over to the to the fireplace and picks up a fireplace poker, uh, one of those big steel implements, holds his hands out, holds it in his hands horizontally, and then he just bends it around into the shape of a hairpin mm-hmm. and throws it on the floor and leaves. And when he leaves, Holmes says to Watson, and, and I mean, Watson says to Holmes, uh, what a terrifying individual he is. And of course, Holmes is known for his brains. Mm-hmm. But Holmes walks over, picks up the, the bent poker, holds the two ends in his two hands, the fists facing each other, and says, had he waited longer, he might have seen that I was no mean athlete myself. And he then proceeds to straighten the poker out back into being a perfect horizontal bar. You know, and that's the thing about Holmes. Somehow, he can do whatever is necessary and he never does it except because he's interested to make sure that guilt is revealed, that the things we don't understand and can bother us are made understandable and can be set right. That's a great promise. And people are willing to go back and re-immerse themselves in that world repeatedly to get that promise. But to argue that reading all of Holmes' work constructs something larger than that promise, that there's more in reading all four of the novels or all 60 or whatever it was of the short stories, as opposed to just reading any one of them. I, th- I think that's not true. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the effect is pretty, I mean, I'm not sure about, a, uh, the first, uh, Scarlet, uh, study in Scarlet. I don't, I don't think that that exactly typifies the rest of the, 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 the stories. But and even when you know there's a there's one called the Valley of Fear in which neither Sherlock Holmes nor uh, Watson are in most of the narrative. Um, it's just a framing sequence basically uh, with them in it. But barring that, I think really you're getting the same thing over and over again, um, and more more of it. Uh, and any individual short story, you know, whether the be the Red Headed League or uh, the problem at Thorbridge or any of that um, it is something of the uh, the universe that people care about rather than or, or even the character uh, rather than the particular you know uh, maybe I, maybe I should stop talking because I think I, I made my point about it it's just a it's an interesting exception to sort of what we've been talking about previously I think. Well, I think there we we are getting 
one of those threads that Luke was talking about to begin with. And it's very unusual to find a, a short story in which not the theme so much as the world is adequate to attract us. But I think Holmes is, I think Doyle has pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can happen. It can happen. Like I say, uh, not all short stories are missing all of those things. Like, for example, the to take it back to Ted Chiang, I think the the uh, the uh, the Alchemist Gate one was it the um, uh, Merchant and the Alchemist. It, Gate. The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate. I think I got more from that than I did most novels. But, and I do Absolutely. think it's got an, enough in there, and it's it's quite a long short story. Maybe it's a novelette, novelette. kind of like. Yeah, but there there was enough in there. Um, but then there's some things which you can really only get from almost reading an author's complete works, like different series. Like you've got to read, like there's some people who, I mean, some authors, you know, you read novel after novel after novel and every novel can be part of a series or a standalone, but they all kind of comment on each other or can comment on each other. Uh, And I do think Asimov is one of those authors that, you know, even the stories which aren't part of a series kind of comment on the ones that are. And then later you realize, oh, it is actually, he's, he's retrofitted it into a series. So it now it's, is making a new statement, which, right. you know, maybe wasn't there the first time you read it. But, you know, later on you find, oh, that's actually set in this point in the, in the continuum or something. So, yeah. yeah. I think there, there, there's another issue that we might be willing to raise here. At least I'd, I'd like to throw it out to see if it's worth discussion. I don't have a lot more time left, so let's uh, if we wrap it up soon anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to talk about. It's mm-hmm. a matter of, it's a matter of, of cutting. Uh, we, I think, talked previously on this podcast about A Clockwork Orange, how its original Heinemann publication had 25 chapters or whatever. It had an extra chapter. And then the editor realized that it was better without that last chapter that made everything seem to turn out good. And so it was cut. And then 25 years later, um, the anniversary edition of A Clockwork Orange was published with the restored chapter, which was obviously meant to make money because the book is worse with that extra chapter. <laughs> I mean, right? you, you've got to realize that this notion of the clockwork orange of, of the mechanical imposing itself on the human is an assault on what we cherish even if we do it unwarrantedly about what it means to be human and having it all work out fine in the end uh, that was a cheap ending and it was a good thing that it was finally cut out and a bad thing that it was added but it was added for money now people get paid by the word and they get paid by speed and you know, you do get paid by the word for short stories, but the fact is that editors have loads of short stories coming in, and they are constrained by the number of pages in their magazines. And so they may well be be uh, exercising stronger control over the writers of short stories than get exercised over the writers of novels. Because after all, if a novel is 250 pages or the novel is 280 pages and, you know, it mostly still reads pretty darn well at 320 pages, it might be that you could sell it for a little bit more if it's 320. And if they are not of the same high quality as the 250 was, still, if you can get it in it. So what I'm wondering is in that classic literature distinction between the incisive short story and the world-building novel, maybe in the world of popular literature, where people are just struggling along on a per-word basis or a per-page basis, 
I wonder if novels don't invite the same kind of boiling down that short stories do. And therefore, short story collections are composed of pieces that feel more tightly integrated than do novels. I think you're conflating a few issues there, but I do like the issues that you bring up. Uh, no, I totally agree with you about like the flabby novel can be a bit more flabby. Um, I, to one point, you've got, I, I remember an interview, I think it was on this podcast with, with you, Jesse, when, when he had on uh, Robert J. Sawyer. And he uh, and he says, oh, yeah, my novels, I write them to a certain length so that two of them will fit in to uh, a, a rack, a, a supermarket or something. Was it something like that? Oh, yeah, that's mentioned. I don't know if he said that, but uh, that, that, that's what I, I certainly argue. They're all yeah. the same thickness. No, I think I think that's what he does as a business decision to a certain thickness. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally think some of his novels or the two novels that I read should have been shorter. They should have what been shorter. What are those two, Luke? Um, I read um, Hominids, which I thought was it's, way too it's long. Uh, and uh, no, it's not a big book. It was just too it's, long. Yeah, and then, uh, and then, calculating God, which I thought uh, I should, I should never read it. To be honest, it was terrible. But um, oh, I thought he, it was wonderful. Oh well, really? Oh, yeah, I loved uh, it. it. Take it me to a paleontologist. What a it great did. opening. <laughs> it did. Oh. Yeah, but in Toronto, I mean, come on, it was terrible. Um, for me, it was terrible. It was uh, just the whole book. Yeah, but anyway, if that book, oh, what what does God need a starship for? That's all I want to ask about that one. Anyway, so um, <laughs> if you uh, when when you have these novels, it feels like he has got a he has got a set story in mind, and then he's got a set word count or set page count in mind, and then he writes the story to the uh, the story that's already in his head to the length that he is contractually obliged to do. You and know, Shakespeare had that same problem with sonnets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he made this arbitrary decision about iambic pentameter on 14 lines, and then he just sort of filled it in. No, he didn't. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I will. Don't think I'll ever hold him up unless I read a, a novel by him, which just totally blows me away. I don't think I'm ever going to hold him up as anything that I can compare. Uh, like his decisions that he makes, at, from an from an artistic point of view and from a storytelling point of view and a thematic exploration point of view, I disagree with all of them. If his goal is to write a good story or to write an interesting story, write an entertaining story, and it turns out. He, he he doesn't care about those things. It's it's purely commercial that he thinks about. You know, he is. He is uh, a yeah, I don't know if it's purely commercial, but so he uh, sets books in Canada, so he gets a good Canadian readership. His books should not be set in Canada. Like, if you're gonna have an alien come down and they're gonna talk to paleontologists and look at collections of skeletons at places, you don't go to Canada. You don't go to Toronto. You'll go to. Uh, actually, we got a pretty damn good. Uh, yeah, the Royal Ontario Museum Royal Ontario is excellent. Royal Ontario Museum is pretty damn good. Is that in Toronto? Is that it? The is indeed, and that's okay. the museum that they land in front of. That he lands in front of. He I, tends he tends to you know he takes it where it goes you know so for one of those series he goes to Switzerland but he you know he he's an odd yeah, he's an odd duck he's particularly patriotic in his writing so point here the argument that he makes that the 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 series of skeletons which one of the the the, the highlights of that museum tour in Toronto is 
a collection of horse skeletons, which clearly show horse evolution, that they actually say in the text, oh, this is so clear that lots of other museums around the world have the same series of skeletons to illustrate the same point of horse evolution. And it's like, so there's like even your main attraction isn't even special in the world of paleontology exhibits in museums and things like that. Anyway, I just thought the whole thing was flawed. And and Hominids won the Hugo that year because it was published in Canada and because he because the uh, the Worldcon was in Canada that year. And that he it, tends to win Hugos anyways. Uh, I, 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 I'm 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 in a lot of sympathy with a lot of what you're saying, but um. <laughs> I think, you know, he is absolutely a commercial writer and he does write to a certain length for a certain um I'm just saying this is from his point. own his own words. He thinks yeah, he said it's true. articles that I've read. He blatantly says he is writing commercially first and that's why I, I when I read his stories, they're just I, I think they're just pathetic. calculating God I thought was a pathetic story. I thought it was a pathetic attempt at explaining any issues of faith and spirituality and evolution and all the questions that he raises, I thought it was, I, I actually thought I've read way, way better blog posts about this, these same issues, way, way better material all over the place. It, it, it just felt like, I, I know it was, it was just, it was really disappointed. I was really disappointed in it because you think all of the issues he raised could have been good. And then he, he falls down and makes the rookie mistake that at the end, he tries to tie it back into science fiction and God needs a starship. We know that God doesn't need a starship. And if God does need a starship, he's not God in the way that he's describing God for the rest of the novel. It just, the whole thing falls apart in the last section. Um, it, it, anyway. it does have a lot of problems. And I think you're pointing them out. <laughs> I'm saying individually scenes, individual scenes could be okay. Individual characters could be okay. But it's, I just thought the whole thing was just trite. It was just, it's, he's, he's an author who doesn't write a lot of, uh, I I I thought the relationship, the developing relationship between the protagonist, the human protagonist and the the alien, the relationship that became possible for that man to have in relationship to his family. I don't want to make a spoiler for people who haven't read the novel. The, the, the problems, the real world problems that that man faced and his way to finally being able to figure out how to face them in such a way as to accept them emotionally and leave his family uh, with some sense of uh, peace it seems to me that whether we think it's a logical god or an illogical god, a necessary alien or an unnecessary alien, a good city to seek a paleontologist or a bad city to seek a paleontologist, there was something going on there of two people who seemed to be, two individuals, the, the alien and the paleontologist, who seemed to be so radically different, who nonetheless could learn from each other and each could move towards something that made them finer in the face of the inevitable mortality that the universe lays before all of us. That was want to say do you want to say that you don't like the way the science worked out? You can say whatever you like. That's my residual feeling about the book and it's not that I have read it in the last 5 years. I can't go scene by scene to try to suggest that it might be read differently from the way you're reading it but I simply don't want to have uh, 
anyone who might happen to be listening to this podcast of ours think that my silence simply is assent to the notion that this is a merely pathetic novel. It is, in fact, for many people I know, myself included, at least it was on the first reading, a very moving novel. Yeah, I'm saying that is in there. However, because he was writing it in a commercial way and that he's aiming for this this set number of pages and that he's having it set in this way and all these other issues that I have with it got in the way of that core story that you're telling, that you're saying there. Like if it hadn't, like that, that story of the guy who's, it doesn't have cancer or something like that and he's going through these different things, different problems. And mm -hmm. I did the relationship between him and in the the alien and and the kind of the, the way that they do come together on on different points and the and the, the way the places that they agree and disagree and the, the story through it i thought that was really interesting and i did think the story of like where he goes um or the decision he makes like you say in regards to his family i thought that was interesting however the entire thing was pulled down by all of these other considerations and all of these other commercial considerations by the length and by the setting and by all these other different things um which I thought pulled it down in a way that, like I say, that it, it illustrates my point even more because at the heart of it, there was this relationship, which I thought did have value, but it was, it was utterly ruined for me by the commercial aspects and, and the length of it and how much it felt like it was padded out um, was, was one of the main problems with the book. And I thought the same thing with hominids as well. There was in there a really good novelette or even short story, I think, but there was just masses amounts of it in, in hominids where it was just like, okay, we're going to have these two people. Ah, man, I've got to fill another hundred pages of the book. Well, I'll just have them isolated in a, in a, in a, in a room together because of quarantine. Okay. We'll have a quarantine situation. Let's just go for it. And then we get like a hundred pages of nothing happening and we can tell that it can't, it shouldn't be in there. It's only being padded out because the other characters are just taken away. It's like, Oh yeah, these guys are having sex with each other for a while. And that's it, you know, and, and, and and there's it, the whole story falls apart because he's wanting to pad it out for an extra hundred pages. And if he'd have kept it short and more concise and into a shorter thing, I think his ideas are good. Those the ideas in those books would have been good enough for a, for a novella or even a novelette or something like that. But by padding out a novel, it ruined the stories. It ruined the ideas for me by the time I got to the end. So I think I, this I, is a. I think this is a circular argument you're making. I'm not disagreeing with your views. I'm sure your views are valid for yourself, Luke. But I think the logic of the way you're presenting them is circular. That is, you say because it's padded out, it's bad. But I think that if had you read it and felt that there were other threads of those things that you say you value in a work, then you wouldn't have called it padded out. In other words. It's because you don't find those things in it that you conclude that it's padded out. It's not that it's bad that it's because he's trying to pad it out. It's bad because he didn't put in something of value. And you know he didn't put in something of value because it feels to you as if it's padded out. And, and that's, that's understandable. I'm saying he admits to writing his novels to a certain length for commercial that's and that's why I use the Shakespeare analogy. The fact that a writer admits to writing to a certain length does not imply that it must be bad. One can say, okay, here's my constraint. I've got to do it this way. And then still come up with something spectacular. No, of course, I understand that point. I'm saying that Robert J. Sawyer isn't because he is he has that commercial complaint he's not a good enough storyteller to weave in those other points and if he if and he, what i'm saying is your point should not be his problem is that he's commercial your pro point should be 
that he's not a good enough storyteller. And I think he could be if he if he wasn't so uh, I wouldn't say wouldn't so commercial, but if he wrote one of those stories to the length that the story implies and the story demands and the story could fit to it would be they would be much much better stories but i'm saying that his 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 commercial ideas of first of all you know the length of the story and all the other things that he he open he openly talks about i'm saying those are the things that i have problems with it's the same with kevin j anderson he says like the way that he talks about his writing and the length of his writing and his style of writing and the way that he writes novels i think it's i think it's utterly terrible and when i read the books like after i've read the book i i hear an interview with him and he talks about the reason why he wrote the book in the first place purely commercial he just says oh no i don't say no to any project i just say yes to any project and that's why he's earns millions upon millions of more dollars than i do but as a creative like as when i read his work it it actually reads as though he is just saying yes to a project just because it's his personal philosophy to say yes to a project no matter what the project is he says he'll say yes to and then he'll then he'll try and do his best job he just can't do it he says that he doesn't write his books he he goes for walks and dictates his books into a, a uh, you know into a dictaphone or into a, a mp3 record or whatever it is and then his wife or his assistant types up his writing and into the novels the thing is it read his novels read as though he's just rambling into a microphone and someone's taking them down. They're terrible. The writing's terrible. I mean, like really bad. And I'm just saying, why would you, why would you like respect the, the decisions that these authors make on a commercial basis? The only reason why Kevin J. Anderson says he writes like that is because he's all, he's published like 200 novels. The only way you can write that many novels is if you're not actually physically using your fingers and you're just speaking. <laughs> dictaphone and having someone type it up for you that's the only way that you can do it and his novels are shit they're just terrible i mean like the last two that i read i don't think i got to the end of them they were just they're just utterly utter garbage and and why should i respect like why should i think that commercial constraints are good when the the author himself admits to all of the things that i dislike about his novels and explains them and seems to hold them as a point of pride i just can't take it i can't take that you know but maybe that's just a. <laughs> I uh, I'm the one who hates novels being too long. But I I like I like what you've done with the summation. I I did a check just now while you were talking, um, or should I say ranting? Um, and I I discovered the length of all of the Robert J Sawyer novels that I've spotted uh, on here on Wikipedia run between 299 pages and 333 pages. They are the same thickness, approximately within about 30 pages and most of them are about 320 so his his stuff is not let's expand it just a, a little bit if we've got the time beyond robert j sawyer and just books get thicker and books get thinner uh in a style of fashion and i just think personally looking at the books that i collect that the thinner novels are the better novels. That's the, the way I generally feel. The only exceptions to that are things like uh, The Lord of the Rings, which is a huge epic. And uh, it's not really three novels, and it's not really a trilogy. It's one big story that has been broken up into either three books most of the time, or six books, or one massive tome. And yet, this is not a linear function for you, since... Um, the best novel you've ever read is not one word long. Um, what you said, and I think this p 
puts you on, on Luke's side in terms of having all those different threads woven together is that you really do prefer novels in general to short stories, and there really is a mm-hmm. difference. That as long as that still feels like a novel, it's got all those things in it, you prefer the more succinct ones to the more ex- the more expansive ones. But I used to think it was decrease, novellas that I but if the decre- Well, maybe that's what it is. So now yeah. we have to figure out what they occupy between the comparative lack of threads in a short story and the plenitude of threads in a in a novel. Are novellas just one or two threads missing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's it's uh it, it's not we we shouldn't judge a book by its length. <laughs> or a story by its length. Um you know, if you take if you take any story like the Odyssey and you 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 break it up into individual chapters as people you know, in retellings can do, um, you lose you lose the general uh, epic scope of it, um, and I'm sure there are scenes that can be taken out of uh, little things. But I, I, I mean, The Hobbit is a fundamentally different book than The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Even though they're set in the same universe, and it's mostly because of the ambition of the author, and not about the length. Right. What was the point of The Hobbit? Is It's a children's book, a fairy tale, and it's a fun adventure. And The Lord of the Rings is all that, but it's taking it much more seriously. It's like an adult version of the same story. And, and so the, the, it's not just bigger in length. <laughs> it's also bigger in depth. Yes. And I think, I think, you know... Luke's reaction to Robert Sawyer is uh, is a rejection of the basic premise that the author is working under, and I think that that's that's that is a really important aspect in rejecting a whole category of you know books written to a certain length. Absolutely, you were t- Luke. You were talking about that uh, before we started the podcast. You were talking about. The last audiobook you reviewed, uh, the Stephen King novel, The Stand. Yeah. It w- was a certain size novel. Was it a short story to begin with? And it, <laughs> the expanded version, um, whether that was for commercial purposes, because the author uh, said, no, I got to redo this. This is one thing that's been sticking in my craw all these years. Or the publisher went to him and said, and said, uh, hey, uh, you got anything more kicking around? Oh, yeah, we have this old stuff. Let's put it together and you can rewrite it and all that. You know, whether it's for commercial purposes or not, um, the trend for Stephen King is to get longer. Um, and I don't know if that's because the audience demands it or he has the more uh, editorial clout. He can just do whatever he wants now. Um, but it's the effect. Whether that effect is good or bad maybe. Maybe not universalizable. You may not be able to say whether it's a good or bad effect in general. But Again, is, I, it, is it a I, better... Sorry. No, carry on, sorry. No, is, is it a better novel uh, short than it is long? Is it a better story <laughs> as a short story than it is as a novel or an expanded novel? I'm looking here on Amazon, I, and I often do this when I when I do my review or finish my review. I look up, see what other people say. I don't I don't want to look at too many reviews before I do my review. But um, it says, you know, all of the one star reviews that I I checked out on um, on Amazon 
or with people saying, oh, I read the, the version of this, which is only 800 pages long. And now that I've read the longer version, I'm really annoyed that it isn't just more of the same. They wanted to read again with just more material and have more of the same characters and more of, you know, the same world. But actually, it seems from these reviews, when Stephen King added the cut material, the, the original, he'd written a very long novel, um, but then it was cut just because there, there'd been too much paper in the book and, they, and the, the uh, publishers didn't want to... For commercial concerns. It was commercial concerns. But when he rewrote it again, he didn't just add that back in. He changed the timing of it. It was originally set at the end of night. Uh, uh, it was originally set in 1980, and then he updated it to 1990. He updated lots of pop references, but not only that, he updated a lot of the characters and a lot of the scenes and added in more characters and all the kind of stuff. And what people are complaining about was that he didn't just add back in what was originally cut out. Was that he actually made it into a new novel with new characters and new stuff, you know, with new storylines and like. He changed the characters in the in the you know people says here, um, you know even if it was inspired by marketing that you could go hey complete and uncut and stuff like that it wasn't just complete and uncut it was actually a different creative endeavor um, the the longer version was so I'm not he sure he had I some hand in it rather than just an editorial went through and rewrote the entire novel there was there was how that people said what you do when you you know it's like Asimov you, you just don't let him near a typewriter unless you want to see something written. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's well it's, sometimes of course there are there are writers who become uh, fixed on the importance of a particular work uh, against the fall of night is one of only seven versions of that story that that clark <laughs> wrote and the last version of it the city and the stars or the last version that clark wrote on his own because there's yet another version that he writes in collaboration with uh greg benford i believe wow. but the city and the stars is in my estimation, a superior book. Wow, to it's a great book. I've, I've not read night. the original, but that uh, that is uh, such a fabulous, fabulous it, book. It's a fabulous book, and it, it was clearly something that stuck in Clark's mind because he wrote it. I think that this, I think, against the fall of night is the second complete draft. Then he wrote it like four more times, and then the seventh draft became the city and the stars and the the main character is named alvin in both cases the city is diaspora in both cases um but everything is expanded the, the time frame is expanded the number of pages in the book is expanded the the stakes are expanded and it resonates so much more powerfully than the original version not that the original version was bad but these days you can't find a copy of against the fall of night but you know, the City and the Stars has been in print forever. Um, so it is sometimes the case that the director's cut really deserves to be the director's cut. And sometimes the director's cut is just a way to make a little extra money by putting in the crap that fell on the cutting room floor. Yeah. For, but for me, there's a, there's a book that I wrote called The Monster Story. Well, it wasn't called that originally. Uh, and I wrote it, I think it was the second novel that I completed or a kind of novella length thing. And I sent it around to some people and they said, uh, it's OK, but it's nowhere near as good as Mining Tomorrow, which is my first one that other people had read. Um, and I was like, oh, OK, so I put it aside. And then I wrote another version of it from scratch. Um, and and that's you can actually read that on my website now but like it's a totally different thing and now i'm rewriting i'm writing a third version again from scratch based on all of the things i liked about the first two versions and i do consider those first two versions complete works that now aren't going to be edited again but the next version of it is going to be 
I wouldn't say the final version because I reckon there's going to be another version after that. You know, they could maybe it's maybe it's obviously it's an idea that's sticking with you exactly with me for years it came to me in a dream many years ago and i think some of my favorite story ideas were dreams and the ones that i keep returning to and keep going back to are the ones which i know when i finally do a good version of them will be really strong and because i keep coming back like finding tomorrow i just uh, earlier this year i put out like a, a, a another edit of that because it's an ebook i can just I, if I want to change some spelling or change some little scenes around here and there to make the continuity fit in later. Of course, people hate it when George Lucas does this, but because no, <laughs> it's just an ebook. Or um, Stephen King. Yeah, and all that kind of stuff and making things fit in and, and changing it. It's an ebook. So I, and I even say at the beginning, it's like this will be continued to be edited into the future. But I, I found the first version of that, of that story that I started writing, I think back in maybe 2003. And, and it's funny that like uh, I, I wrote one in 2003 and one in 2008. And I can still see those really like the, the ideas that I really like in Mining Tomorrow in this really early draft. You know, he comes back to London and the Olympics are in London in 20, I think 2020, the Olympics are in London. And the, and the other one, it's like 2012, of course, 2012. Um, but yeah, it's it's a. It, I, I saw all of these different ideas, how they developed over time, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I know that this story will. I will go back and revisit this story, and I've got no problems with that. I don't, and I don't have any problems with authors going back and revisiting stories, as long as they don't expect me to always think that the last one is the one that's important. You know, like is it the Asimov Nightfall one, and uh, and then that was rewritten with Robert Silverberg into a terrible, and that novel for me even though it was written later that one doesn't exist i'm just sticking with the short <laughs> um, that that whole thing was just that whole project the novel project i think was just terrible and again didn't add anything and in fact took away from the original short story so even though the the, the nightfall the short story is a is a classic i guess um and very well known and well loved yeah the novel is just a an abomination i think um but Again, it's okay with that because the short story still exists and is really easy to get hold of. Uh, whereas, like you say, the Against the Fall of Night is really tricky to get hold of because it's probably never been released as an ebook or as an audiobook because the later versions have su superseded it, I guess. First published in Startling Stories, November 1948. I do not have a copy, I'm, s I'm sad to say. But I do want to find one and see, see what it's like. Well, it's a lot like... It's a lot like a perfectly nice novel that eventually becomes a masterpiece. Yeah, it's only 60 pages. Mm. Um, well, I've got a copy. Of a, if so I untether myself from my microphone, I can go and take a look at a copy. I actually, I do own a copy. Ah, is, maybe it's serialized. Um, yeah, just... because it was published um, against the fall of night and um, another book came out together i'm gonna untether myself and go go look um the uh the city and the stars it does feel like two stories kind of put together yeah. there's the first half which is one adventure and then the second half which definitely feels like a the continuing adventures of alvin um yeah so uh that's pretty cool so mm -hmm. so we wrap it up after yeah absolutely Otherwise, otherwise we'll have to do some editing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Right. I have, uh, I have the original hardback publication of Against the Fall of Night in front of me, and uh, it, let's see, and it's published along with the Lion of Kamar. 
So this is, uh, let's see what the copyright date is on this. It's Harcourt Brace, 1949 uh, for Standard Magazines and 1953. So this is the first edition of the hardback version. The Lion of Kamar, which I think nobody reads anymore. Um, let's see. Is the first... 62 pages. And then Against the Fall of Night begins on page 65 and goes through page 214. So it's about 150 pages. It's it's certainly of a length that would have been published once they came along in the ace double novel uh, mm. format. Um, so it, it is in fact a novel and uh, given the typeface used here I wouldn't be surprised if it could have been um, reduced to 60 pages, but not the 60 pages that you would see in the normal typeface of startling stories. I will um, put up a link to the picture, the cover, the cover art for that on this podcast. Okay, good. Is it, well, I'm going to cover here because I think this is, this is way longer than I was expecting, but again, length is a... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a commercial podcast, my friend. <laughs> Indeed, which means, which means we would have to cut it down to half hour or one hour, whatever it is. Well, I just uh, if if any listeners are keeping with us as long as we have, uh, I want to thank them. Yes, thanks for sticking around. It's been a fun discussion this end, and I always like it that Eric uh, has different opinions than me and and Jesse, and Jesse has different opinions than me and Eric and etc. Because yeah, it makes it, it makes it interesting because then we've got to defend our positions rather than just rowdier. I like it. Me too, gents. Me too. It's all civil. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, uh, what's um, what's the scoop on that course? Um, uh, I don't think we mentioned that, but uh, I, you're teaching a course coming up, and I signed up for it. How do they make <laughs> any money? It's a it's a for profit organization, right? Uh, at the moment, they are not making any money. They have angel capitalists behind ah. them, and uh, they're experimenting to see how it will work. Um, and I am not at liberty to tell you all of the details that I know, um, but I can say that right now um, one can register for free. There are questions yet to be decided about whether or not ultimately there would be such things as certificates of participation and so on. Um, no credit from any accredited institution is being offered at the moment, but we are playing with methods of trying to make these courses as substantial as they would be if you were in residence at the institutions that are sponsoring the courses, um, which so far include Stanford, Michigan, Penn, Princeton, and I think Yale. So It's, a, it's an interesting lineup of uh, stuff I've read and stuff I haven't read, so I'm looking forward to oh you mean in my course yeah yeah in your course it's uh, very exciting for me in fact uh when we get done today i'm going to finish outlining one of the the units uh, that i was working on just uh yesterday uh, the idea of trying to educate people um which is always a troublesome thing to me. I, I'm with Luke. I like the give and take. Um, but, you know, we, we do, you know, sometimes get up and just talk for a while. Um, the idea of doing that in the U, to the YouTube generation, instead of walking into my lecture hall and listening to me for 80 minutes, uh, rather 
hunting around on clips that go between 8 and 15 minutes each, the idea that you can rechunk things in such a way that somehow you can manage collectively to offer thoughts that are of value to people on the individual works and also collectively talk to them about the larger ideas of why fantasy functions for us and how it functions for us and then how these functions in the human mind constrain us and guide us and inspire us in constructing the human world. Um, those are general theoretical inferences that one can draw from having looked at specific works, but lots of them. So this course has the interesting challenge of not being able to weave them in and out of each other with quite the same fluidity that one would in, say, 80-minute lectures. And yet, if one can disentangle those things, um, it's possible to think of uh, getting a more powerful, concentrated message in each of those video clips. So it's a uh, it's a, an interesting challenge for me, and uh, a lot of people have signed up for it, so I am, uh, I'm kind of humbled and hoping, hoping, hoping that it will work. One of the things that I've suggested and that Coursera has accented, assented to is that there will be a forum so that people can write in their own thoughts in a public way as opposed to just sending in essays, mm -hmm. uh, which there will be essays. But in addition to that, there'll just be a forum that's utterly ungraded, unevaluated, just, you know, hey, I didn't get this in the book, or the book made me think about that, or whatever people want to say. Um, and at the end I, of a class. Like at the just, end. Yeah. Exactly, just like at the end of a class. Um, research shows that with massive enrollments, and this certainly constitutes that, um, when a question is raised, typically other people in the class respond to it appropriately within half an hour. Mm. So it's not as if I really need to, to be talking on the forum very much, but we're going to make sure that we monitor the forum. And uh, it's not just me making up video clips that people can then watch as they read the books and, and write their essays and comment on each other's essays. Um, but the reality of how things develop during the course will be monitored. And if it seems appropriate for some residual question um, or some idea that seems that it needs further expansion, I'll record a supplementary clip or two for anyone, maybe each of the units, to add to the course as the course goes on. So even though, obviously, I can't have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with each of the thousands of students who've been kind enough to, uh, to register, I hope that people will be able to get the sense, because it'll be a real one, that I'm part of a community here that's studying all of this stuff and caring about it, and I'm listening, and from time to time, I'll try to speak back. Do you have a... It, it, Sorry, there's like 6,000 Facebook likes. How many, how many students have you got? Are you allowed to say? Um, the last time I was given a number, um, it was 18,000. Holy crap. Um, that's one way to look at it. Since 18 is the number that stands symbolically for life in Hebrew, it is indeed <laughs> holy. I would not like to think of my students, however, as crap. No. <laughs> yes, it's 18... It's a thousand chai. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I've been, I'm glad to be able to say I've been a, a 
a well-liked teacher at the University of Michigan. Um, but I think it may be that uh, that uh, what's just what? Why is it making noise? Oh, uh, Luke just was asking for the course description. He's interested in signing up. <laughs> I don't it's know free. That. It's free, it Luke. It's free, but it is course looks good. Have a look at the book list. That's all I want to look. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, um, well, so but anyway, uh, it, it, I, this one course may actually turn out to give me uh, an effect, that, uh, an opportunity to have an effect or work with as many students as I have in a lifetime yeah. on campus, which is a complicated and stunning thought. Well, uh, even assuming half the people, you know, actually follow through and show up uh, for. For the the videos, are they going to be on YouTube, or is it all through the Coursera website? All through the Coursera website, because okay. we're monitoring people's uh, activity. Um, our hope, my hope now, I don't know if the engineers in California have been able to complete this work yet, but my hope is that not only we'll be monitoring people's activity, but we'll be able to use their activity as part of a participation grade. Um, so in addition to a writing grade, we'll have a participation grade, and we'll massage those together so that if people do have a certificate of participation, Although there'll be no credit given, um, they will be able to get a grade from, you know, A, B, C, D, or at Michigan E, at other places F. So they'll be able to, if they want it, find out where they would fit um, and how to improve their performance. I'm worried. I'm going to have to audit the course just so I don't have to. No, because <laughs> don't you, don't have have to, you, don't have, you don't have to ask for the grade. Oh, right? okay. Nobody has to ask for this. Nobody not, has to ask for it at all. It would be very embarrassing to get a, a, a C. Oh, and none of it is public either. That's oh. part of it. None of it is public. None of it is public. So our current idea is that every time somebody submits their essay on the week's reading, um, that will almost immediately, that is as soon as the, the online deadline has passed, it will be sent to four other participants to make certain kinds of comments about and get certain kinds of evaluation. <laughs> but it will always be anonymous. And thanks to the size of the course, you will never have responses from the same person twice and you will never know who's responding to you and you will never know to whom you respond and you will never comment on anybody's essay more than once. <laughs> However, you can present yourself in your own identity on the forum and get any kind of conversation going you feel like. I was going to say, like, if there's 18,000 people signed up, who marks these papers? Like, who's going to give the grades? I mean, who, like... They will. They, so it's a... That, that's actually really, really interesting. I, I wonder... Mm kind of thing happened more i i first saw this years ago and i was i think it was a tv show and there was a snowboard competition there was different teams going up against each other and they were like well the only people who uh are qualified to judge the other people in this snowboard competition are the other competitors so at any time there was like i think there were 16 teams and at any time eight of them were running down the course and the other eight teams were stationed along different parts of it giving grades to the people who were coming down um and then, of course, it swaps over, you know, and, they, and, and they're sort of rotating around all the time. So uh, and I really love that idea of like, uh, of course, that's a competition. This isn't a competition, but like using the people who are now knowledgeable. And if you have enough people judging the wisdom of the crowds will probably give a better score than a single any one single teacher or any one single grader. I'm not knocking your abilities at grading papers, Eric, of course. But, <laughs> well, uh, he's not a robot. He can't do 18,000 essays in one night. <laughs> There, I, I, not, I, I, I cannot, nor do I care to. Um, 
But um, I'm with you, Luke. I think that there's a lot. We have a slightly more machinery to what's going on than you just described. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter at the moment. But I agree with you. Um, it is important that the people who are the participants are, in a sense, the, the right people to judge. And one of the virtues of this system, and we'll be testing it out and see if it works, one of the virtues of this system is that if it does work, it should be adaptable to different levels. Mm. That is, if these readings seem appropriate for the kinds of people who are interested in fantasy and science fiction in a somewhat serious way, then we have now found a kind of implicit audience qualification. Um, if, for instance, we decided to teach, one decided to teach, a history of the U.S. Civil War, and one picked documents that sort of implied, and I'm using now grade levels metaphorically, that you're a sophomore in college, then PhDs who in history aren't going to bother with it, and high school sophomores aren't going to bother with it. But if you were to pick a series of documents and resources as the focal points of your discussion of the Civil War that seemed appropriate to junior high school kids, then not only might you get junior high school kids doing it, but you also might get 45-year-old immigrants to the United States who are learning something new about that country. And so by having the system geared to people who are something is making is that my end that's making the no, noise? that's Luke. I'm, just moving, I'm, okay. I'm moving my laptop down into the okay. living room okay. <laughs> by, by having the system show. right by having the, the system geared to an appropriate constituency we can get rid of the what I think is the antiquated idea that there is a right or wrong grade for an essay that is absolutely yeah right i mean uh, if i have a, a doctoral student who turns in a 10 page essay on the james is a portrait of a lady and i have uh, a cousin who is a junior in high school who sends me his 10 page essay on portrait of a lady i sure as heck do not expect to keep my cousin to the same standards i expect to keep that phd student to Right? It's ridiculous. There is no abstract, absolute grade for anything. Any grade is always constructed yeah. in the context yeah. of the teaching and learning situation. And is, what we're trying to do here is come up with a system that automatically self-regulates itself for that, the way a governor works on a, uh, on a steam engine. Uh, don't you, in your science fiction and politics course, I remember you saying in the introduction to that, you say... If you read the book and do an essay, and you actually write the essay that I give you, you get an A. Isn't that what you say? Like if you, I can't, maybe that wasn't you who who said that, but I I've think it was. A course, I've never taught a course called science fiction and politics. So. Oh, that's um. Yeah, yeah you're conflating. Uh, oh, okay. uh, Courtney Brown with uh, oh, Eric Rabkin. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that, I'm getting completely mixed up. Yeah. Sorry, that's a uh, that's Courtney Brown. Yeah. Well, I've not talked to him. I'm, yeah, I'm getting mixed up there. That's another podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well. It's all right. Speaking um, of... Like, I don't give grades either. Uh, unless unless the... Uh, on essays, I don't give, give grades. I just say, this is the good part. These are mistakes. Uh, obvious, you know, grammar mistakes. I'm not sure what you're trying to say. I just go through it, and it's much better. But sometimes, you know, they require you to give one, so... I say, well, you tell me the scale. <laughs> you give exactly. me all the information. I'll do my best to to give you something. But really, it's yeah. like uh, it's why I don't give star ratings either. It's like 
Uh, no, it it doesn't. It it's it's all it's too arbitrary and it, it it's distracting from the main point. I think, which is you know, here's what was really good about what you're saying. Um, this sounds exactly right. What a novel idea! Did you really come up with this? This sounds like something you might have read somewhere else. That sort of thing, you know. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one couldn't turn it into grades if one wanted to, because let's face it, the three of us are having an extended conversation. And at the end of this, um, in the past, at least, I won't speak for today's conversation, <laughs> but in the past, at least, we have each come away with the thought that, yes, by golly, that was a very good thing of its kind. And I would love to be able to do that again. I the think, proof I of think, which is that here we are. And I if we had come away thinking, well, yes, it was a conversation, but who cares about it? You know, that's not worth my time. Well, then we vote with our feet by not mm-hmm. showing up. So That's why I don't listen to the SFF audio podcast anymore. <laughs> You're just on it. Yeah. No, no, that's not true at all. <laughs> well, gentlemen... I haven't done um, the haven't done the Homer's Odyssey ones yet. I'm saving all them up to do. We're not it. done that. Where we got two more two more segments of the Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm, I'm saving them up. I'm the, I'm enjoying the new releases and some other bits and pieces, but the uh, um, yeah the Odyssey one. I'm I'm gonna go through that in a in a big chunk um, in one go. I think it's the most a different kind of podcast we've ever done. I think I've not listened to any of them yet, so yeah. I hope they're, they're worth listening to. I think so. Once I polish off the Odyssey again, which I'm uh, again, I'm, it's one of those books which we, we could have bought that one up. Oh no, I think we did bring it up. It's like, yeah. well, it's one of those things that I've not. I don't think I've ever read all of it all the way through in order before. Oh. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure there's parts of it which I've never read because I've only. Oh, you're going to be surprised then. I'm going to be doing. I've done books here and books there and books there. You know, it's uh, it's one of those staple, not staples. What do you say? Almost a foundational thing, like the Bible, where very few people, I mean, I I even think it's almost pointless to try and read the Bible all the way through in order, um, because that wasn't how it was written, and that wasn't, you know, the orders that we have it now is never the, I mean, it wasn't even the order that anyone thought it should have been up until, you know, recent centuries. Well, um, you can think of the Odyssey as kind of like one guy's take on the Bible, like it's the Benjamin Franklin version of the Bible, you know? It's probably it probably has nothing to do with it, the actual guy Homer. He's just like some bard who learned it, and he's attributed it. it may not even have existed, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely worth rereading. It's it's a it's a good example of what exactly we're looking at. It's quite short, uh, densely packed, and a fun adventure, and many many themes. I think it it make a very good uh, Luke SFBRP. You think I could do a good review of the Odyssey? I think you would. It'd be very interesting because the way you do a show, you know, you break it down into different segments. Uh, it's got some really obvious themes that it talks about in each each mm. chapter, sort of the same thing. But uh, it's yeah, we're definitely getting a, a lot of a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah, I'll get to it. Someone sent me a message saying, "Hey, you should review the Bible as because I'm writing a book." Oh, that's something that you would like, um, Eric. I'm writing a book at the moment called Matthew, Mark, Luke, Skywalker, and <laughs> it's about about the textual history. Really, it's about the textual history of the New Testament, um, uh, the letters and gospels and Acts, not so much anything else, but about the the history of the text and how that is being repeated, or that all of the same things that um, uh, you know, the, all the different ways of 
all the critics that have been doing for the last 200 years of studying the Bible, all of those same things that they're finding in the Bible uh, is, is now going on with the Star Wars movies um, and, and all of the issues that I really enjoy reading about and learning about the Bible. It can be really well illustrated by the, the issues that are coming up with the development of the Star Wars, like the, the main Star Wars movies. Um, it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, I mean, Lucas said he'd read Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell said that he developed all of these things by looking at all of the world's myths, including the Bible. So, yeah. I mean, it's not Eric, that the Bible can illustrate one. I mean, you know, one no, follows no, Eric, the other. You're getting, you're, getting my, you're getting it mixed up. I'm not talking about the comparisons of the characters or the comparisons of the story or the comparisons of the themes or anything like that. I'm talking about the, the history of the text itself so like I'm, i don't care where the story comes from or what the story is i want to talk more about where the story comes from i don't want to talk about where the uh where the um i'm sorry i don't like, know, maybe i don't know what it, you mean look you Luke talking, about the, talking about the revisions you know like how uh, star wars has been changed uh many times since lucas originally shot it and yes reordered it and such the, the bible see. wasn't written as the bible it was even the individual you know, books I, I, Bible weren't written as just a book. That I, I we do realize read. that. What's that? I said I do realize that. Yes, but I'm saying that all of the thing, all of the issues that come up in sort of like, okay, this was maybe written first in this language and then translated into this language and then it was edited here. And what were the reasons it was edited for, you know, the orthodox? And then there was other edits made on this book or this book came out. And then because this other book came out, then this book over here was re-edited again. And we can see these different layers of edits where different people with different theologies have gone through, say, Matthew and rewritten like there's a story and then there's another bit inserted in here and then that insertion has then been commented on something and the original story and the later comment has been written with someone with the same theology but the comments that's in between has got a different theological idea or a different purpose in there and you can see the same kind of thing is happening now with the star wars and then George Lucas goes in and edits it, and then these fan editors go in and make their own versions of it. But they don't just right. make a version; they don't make their own version. So I'm, I'm not talking about the the underlying story, more about the development and of the edits and the development of the form and the development of the the, the history. So talking about how, like how, um, oh, you've got to go, Eric. Anyway, I've got to go as well. <laughs> We've all got to go. I've got to go make some coffee. It was nice talking to you, gents. Yeah, it was a pleasure as always. Luke, I look forward to seeing that when it's available. Yeah, maybe I'll get it out some point. Maybe in two years' time, <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you. This time we talked at length about shortness. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>